are you your own authority? Well, to me, well, my opinion is our world is filled with that. People who are staking their lives and their eternity when they are the sole source of their authority. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Tradition in the biblical sense is not always a bad thing, but what does it mean to be like a Pharisee? Why does the Pharisee's obedience throughout the New Testament relate so closely to the chief example of legalism? Are you in danger of doing the same? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series titled Tradition. We're looking at the topic of legalism in Mark chapter 7. Most of us are not tempted by the specific rituals of the Pharisees, but as Tom will begin to teach today, there are three practical ways you can guard your heart against legalism. Open your Bible right now as we join Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed. The marketplace was the most public place in any town. It's where the vendors gathered and people came to buy and to look. It was often very crowded. In fact, if you've ever been to Jerusalem or seen pictures of Jerusalem, the marketplace probably looked very similar to this. This is from the old city in Jerusalem. Very crowded. And so when the Jewish people came home from that kind of environment, they could easily have touched someone or something that rendered them ceremonially unclean. But for that kind of exposure, that kind of potential exposure to what was unclean, it wasn't enough to wash your hands. The Greek word for cleanse here, when you come from the market, is the Greek word baptizo. You recognize it? Baptize. It means to immerse. It means to immerse under the water. So if they went to the marketplace, when they got home, they needed to take a ceremonial bath, dip their whole body. This was huge in the first century. In fact, archaeology has discovered that many Jewish people had what was called a mikveh in their homes. It was a ceremonial bath. It wasn't about hygiene again. It was to practice cleansing of yourself so that you could go to the temple so that you could worship God. There were also public mitvoth, or rich public ritual baths. In fact, near the southern steps of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem was found a building with numbers of these ritual bathing installations so that pilgrims were not allowed to go up onto the Temple Mount and, in, and into the temple grounds without being ceremonially poor, or pure. Rather. So these were these baths were there so that if you came to the temple, you would immerse yourself under the water and come out, and then you would be ceremonially able to enter the temple to worship. To date, over 150 of these ritual baths have been found in Jerusalem, 60 of them in the area where the priests used to live, the western hill. Forty of them found near the southern side of the Temple Mount. So if you were going to eat just in case you had somehow become ceremonially unclean, you washed your hands with a handful of water. If you went to the market and were exposed at that level, then when you got home, you had to bathe in this ritual bath. You had to immerse yourself entirely. 
Mark adds in verse 4, and there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, many other traditions that they must keep, such as, and he gives us some examples, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Cups are simply normal drinking containers, drink that out of which you drink. Pitchers describes what you fill your cup with. And copper or bronze pots has to do with larger vessels that are used for cooking in the kitchen. 35 pages of the Mishnah has to do with washing the various daily implements that you use to make sure they are ceremonially clean. Ladies, you think you have a problem. I mean, it was very detailed. They said that if if a vessel, for example, that you used in your kitchen or home had curves or crevices, then it was far more likely that something that would make it ceremonially unclean would come in contact with it. Therefore, it had to be washed as opposed to a flat surface that would not need to be washed. Porous surfaces like pottery had to be ceremonially washed because they were too more easily rendered unclean as opposed to hard surfaces like glass or metals. So you see how the thing just builds. And there was this endless amount of regulation and rules to keep. Not one of these rituals came from the Old Testament law. Instead, they were all drawn from a growing body of the scribes' interpretation of the law. What was strictly oral tradition in Jesus' time would later be codified, as I said, to the Talmud made up of the Mishnah and the Gemara. You know, it's hard for us to even consider what this was like because we are, it's so foreign to us. One of the commentators, James Edwards, describes or suggests that this whole distinction between clean and unclean is perhaps best illustrated to us who live in 21st century America by thinking of how things were and still are under communism. Imagine for a moment you lived in a completely communism-oriented culture where there is authoritarian government and where any hint of suspicion taints you and perhaps even condemns you. Now, how would it be if you were a person living in that culture and that society and you knew someone else, someone around you was under suspicion for being a spy or being anti-government? What would you do? You would avoid any contact with that person for fear that contact would render you unclean in the sight of the government, that you would be caught up in the suspicion It would taint yourself and threaten your own position. That was the whole system of the Pharisees because being clean was everything. That meant you could go to the temple. That meant you could go to the synagogue. That meant you could interact with other people in your town and in your city. You could do business. But if you were unclean, you couldn't. So it was a package, and it was a a repressive set of rules. So that was the situation. In light of all of that, and by the way, here are a couple of more mikvahs that I mentioned. These are all in the Temple Mount area, and even a large one like that where they would go and dip themselves. But in light of all of that situation, notice what the Pharisees say to Jesus. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands. 
Now, you can almost hear the insinuation of guilt in that question, can't you? How could any legitimate rabbi not have known about these traditions, not have taken them seriously, and not have passed them on to his disciples? What were you thinking? Well, Jesus didn't keep the tradition either. Luke tells us in Luke eleven thirty eight. On another occasion, when the Pharisees saw what Jesus had done, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. So Jesus didn't bother with their tradition either. Now, why is all this important? Why does it matter? Understand this. If you lived in first century Judaism, you could be excommunicated. You could be put under the ban for not ceremonially washing yourself which meant you couldn't have any real relationship with your family, with any business partners, with the temple, with God. You were cut off from the society. You might as well move somewhere else in the world. In fact, the Mishnah puts it like this, but whom did they place under the ban? In other words, excommunicate. Eliezer ben Enoch. Why? Because he cast doubt on the tradition of the elders concerning the cleansing of hands. They're after Jesus. And here's a, here's a little point of contention. Here's a crack in the armor. Jesus isn't playing by their rules. Understand this. The main point here isn't this one particular circumstance of hand washing or washing ceremonially. The, the problem is much more fundamental than that, and that brings us to the second part, and we're just going to begin this part tonight because there's, there's much to learn here from what Jesus says. But let's look at Jesus' personal diagnosis of legalism. Jesus now responds. We know what's going on. We know the question that's been posed to him. How does Jesus respond? The reason Jesus and the religious leaders clashed is very clear. Listen carefully. It had to do with the source of authority. Notice how it's put. The key issue, the source of authority. Verse 3, the tradition of the elders. Verse 4, many other things which they have received in order to observe. Verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Verse 7, Jesus says, you teach as doctrines the precepts of men. Verse 8, you neglect the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. Verse 9, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. In verse 13, you invalidate the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down. Now notice the difference in emphasis and in focus between Jesus and the Pharisees. Notice what the Pharisees are into here. Tradition, things received, precepts of men, tradition of men, your tradition which you have handed down. That's what they're into. Notice what Jesus is into. It comes in two expressions. The commandment of God, the Word of God. This is all about the source of authority. In fact, I could put it like this. The primary message of this entire account is this. The spiritual bankruptcy of substituting human tradition for divine revelation. That's what's really going on here. Jesus wanted them to know just how utterly incompatible his teaching was with what 
Judaism had become in the first century. In fact, I want you to turn back to Mark chapter 2. It's been a while since we looked at this text, but Jesus here responds to their question about fasting, and then after he responds to their question about fasting, in verse 18 of Mark 2, or rather they ask the question, um, in verse 19, Jesus answers their question. But verse 21 and 22, Jesus follows up with two parables, two illustrations that are making the same point. And I want you to look at these again with me because they really bring us up to date with what's going on in chapter 7. Two parables making exactly the same point. The first one, verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And then verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Now, there's really a lot you have to understand about that that I'm not going to take you back through. If you're interested, I defended the, the view I'm going to present to you now uh, when I went through this passage, so go back and listen to it on the Internet if you want to do that. But let me just remind you of the point Jesus is making here. The new cloth and the new wine represent the teaching of Jesus. The old worn-out garment and the old brittle wineskins represent not the Old Testament, but first-century Judaism. What Judaism had become under the control and domination of the Pharisees. And Jesus said attempts to mix the two would show them to be completely incompatible, just as the old cloth and the new cloth, the new wine and the old wineskins, and show them to be mutually destructive. Jesus was here calling for a faith that was entirely separate from first century Judaism. You can't put them together. Again, remember, Jesus is not contrasting his ministry with the Old Testament. He's contrasting his ministry with what Judaism in the first century had become. It's distortion of the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, listen, the faith that I bring could never be a reformed sect of Judaism. Why? Because it's like old worn-out cloth or overused wineskins. First century Judaism has become worthless. Why? There are two reasons. And one of them is now turned back to Mark 7. One of them is here in Mark 7. Judaism had substituted human tradition for divine revelation. Isn't that what Paul said? In Galatians 1, he mentions that this, this, these traditions consumed him before Christ. Galatians 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous, he doesn't say for the Scripture, for the ancestral traditions. That's what I live for. It was all about the laws of cleanness and uncleanness and all of the regulations. When the Mishnah was eventually written, 25% of it, 186 pages, was about the issue of cleanness, ceremonial cleanness. 
And the problem was the Pharisees had come to believe this oral tradition was as important as the Old Testament, as important as the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of God. They actually taught that at Sinai, God gave two laws. He gave the written Torah, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy, and he gave the oral Mishnah, or the interpretation of the law. And that was simply passed down all the way from Moses to the time it was eventually written down after the time of Christ. The Torah taught what God commanded, but not how to do it. They said the oral tradition explained how God's law was to be lived out in real life. But Jesus would have nothing to do with it. For him, the commands of God contained in the Scripture and the Scripture alone were important. And as we'll see next time, his own commands recorded Scripture. Now, folks, most of us are not tempted by the specific rituals of the Pharisees. But for us today, there are several crucial implications that come out of this account. Number one, make sure that the only source of authority you trust is the Scripture. Make sure that the only source of authority you trust is the Scripture. That's the point Jesus is making. Your tradition has nothing to do with God's Word or God's commandment. Let's go back to God's commandment, Jesus says, back to the Word of God. Make sure that's the only source of authority you trust. Let me ask you tonight, What is your source of authority? On what do you stake your confidence? Is it additional books that are added to the Scripture, like the Mormons and their Book of Mormon, their Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price? Some book added to the Bible to make it complete, to interpret it? Is it like Roman Catholicism with its traditional interpretations of the church in the magisterium, and the magisterium carries equal weight, if not more so, than the clear statements of Scripture itself, because that's the church's interpretation, just as the Mishnah was the interpretation of the rabbis. Is it like the Seventh-day Adventists who have simply added a long list of oral commandments of what Christians can't do, and that pleases God, if you don't do these things? Or maybe worst of all, is it simply your own thoughts about what's right and wrong? Are you your own authority? Well, I don't think. Well, I think. Well, to me, well, my opinion is our world is filled with that. People who are staking their lives and their eternity when they are the sole source of their authority. What is the source of your authority? Jesus said it should be one thing, the Word of God. That's what the reformers meant when they used the expression sola scriptura. I love the way the Geneva Confession in 1536 addresses this very issue. It says, first we affirm that we desire to follow Scripture alone, Scripture alone as a rule of faith and religion, without mixing with it any other things which might be devised by the opinion of men apart from the Word of God, and without wishing to accept for our spiritual government any other doctrine than what is conveyed to us by the same Word without addition or diminution, according to the command of our Lord. What's the source of your authority? Make sure it's only the Scripture. 
There's another crucial implication for us as believers. Be careful not to twist or distort the meaning of Scripture. That's what's happening with the Pharisees. As we'll see next time that we study this together, they supposedly were interpreting the Bible, the same book you and I hold, but those rules and regulations I gave you had nothing to do with it. How did that happen? They were careless in how they handled the Scripture. Be careful not to twist or distort the meaning of Scripture. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 23 says, for you will no longer remember the oracle of the Lord, because every man's own word will become the oracle. And you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Peter puts it like this in 2 Peter 3.16. Paul, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which, in Paul's letters, are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. You and I have to not only have the Scripture alone as our sole source of authority, but we have to be so careful to interpret it clearly and accurately. I love what Martin Luther says about it. Of course, he was such a champion for the external Word, as he called it, the Word of God revealed. He says, we should not be bold in dealing with the Word of God. You had better think, I do not understand these words, but rather than alter them or take something from God's words or add anything to them, I will let them alone and commit the matter to God. If you do not understand it, then honor it and say, I shall wait until I do understand it. We should hear God's Word with fear and study it with humility. We should not pounce upon it with our own notions of what is right, for there is no jesting with God's Word. Weigh the words carefully, comparing that which has preceded with that which follows, and be intent on capturing the real meaning of any passage and not on fabricating your own dreams. If God has spoken in a book, then you and I had better not treat it lightly and mishandle it. Let me just ask you very practically. Are you at times tempted to take the Bible and with really no notion for the context, pull that verse out of context and make it say what you want it to say? At that moment, you are guilty of distorting the Word of God. There's a third crucial implication, third and final crucial implication, and that is, don't let your conscience be bound by anything but the Word of God. Don't let your conscience be bound by anything but the Word of God. Christ didn't, did he? I mean, he, he came back to what, is, what does God say? What is the commandment of God? What is the Word of God? And even though there was this incredible external pressure to conform, Jesus didn't. He remained faithful to God by refusing to do what people around him who were supposedly more spiritual wanted him to do. May God give us the courage to live like that. May God give us the courage of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms in 1521 when he said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason that is from the Scriptures, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, 
I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. God help me. May God give each of us the courage to stand on the scriptures and the scriptures alone and what that meaning has consistently been for 2,000 years and brought out by godly men and women through that time. Tradition or the Word of God? Where's your authority? Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part two of Tradition. Tom will have part three for us next time, and we'd love it if you join us then. In a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of The Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect. And we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.